I'm going to continue today with part four of my ongoing sermon series on the life of Paul. And uh, this week, the, the subject of my ser- sermon is serving in ministry with others. Serving in ministry with others. And I can't think of a more pertinent subject than for us in, a ch- in our church as we are on the border of moving into our new church building. Uh, I believe we'll be in somewhere around the first week of December, and I'm convinced that God is going to bring hundreds of people to that church who will need, yes, I believe that. And I believe that we have to be prepared to spread the gospel to people that may have never heard it before, all kinds of people. And so the only way we're going to be able to do this is to partner together. This message is about partnership in ministry, how God wants us to use us. Now, Leonard Bernstein, the famed uh, orchestra leader of the New York Philharmonic, was once asked, what was the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? And he responded, second fiddle. (laughs) Second fiddle. Uh, And how profound is that statement uh, in life? Second fiddle. Not being the public vista, but being behind the scene. Now, you see, that should not be what it's like in ministry. Uh, And so the first sermon point that I have for you is, while that's a profoundly true statement in life, it should not be true in ministry. We don't care about being second fiddle. We don't care about being behind the scenes because our one desire is to lift up the cross of Christ in whatever role he has given us. And so, yes, certainly, you see it in a church like this. Maybe I am the public face of the church, but you are the legs and feet of the church. You are where this church is going to go and how God is going to advance the gospel. And so that becomes important. We all join together. So when you examine the life, really, of great individuals, you will always see that there was a section of second fiddlers that, that really were around to give to them success. That's, the, that's an example in life. Uh, and, but now in ministry, you see, we see something else. We see that example in ministry also. It's not new. For example, Moses had a second fiddler in his life. It was his brother, Aaron. Uh, And you know that God called Aaron to be with him right from the beginning when Moses said, I can't speak, I stutter, I'm too old. And God said, you don't worry about that. I've got that covered, your brother will come. And he played second fiddle to Moses. David also had a second fiddler in Jonathan. Uh, And you know that he was closer to Jonathan than he was even to a brother. Uh, And so God provided that second fiddler to advance that ministry. Elijah also had a second fiddler. His name was Elisha. Uh, And Jesus, you see, set the rule for this for his disciples, uh, in which he determined he would never send them out alone. He would send them out two by two. And you can see this in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, which is on the board there. And there it says, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over impure spirits. Gave them authority, two by two, not sending them out alone, sending them out together. 
Uh, and so you see the strategy of the Lord recognizing that together there's a partnership in ministry. We're not lone rangers. We're not designed to be lone rangers. When we advance the gospel of Christ, we do it together. We do it in partnership. Look, there's no place for Rambos or superstars in church. This is about advancing the kingdom of God. It's about advancing the cross of Christ. And so when God calls a man or woman to accomplish his work, he then brings them alongside other individuals who together collectively will advance the kingdom of God. Even though there may be one who is a more public figure, that public figure only has success as those behind him lift up his arms to the Lord. Look at Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. And there you see this profound statement. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What a profound statement out of Ecclesiastes. Now, all of us, you see, need help in ministry. All of us. The greater the task that God calls you, the more help that you need. Now, you do not have to be an expert to understand this uh, and understand the perils of going alone. It's quite clear God has called you to be partnered up with others in every way. Uh, and so, in the passage that we're going to study with Paul, Barnabas is alone in Antioch. Paul is alone uh, in Tarsus, now on the shelf for 10 years. Think about that. He's on the shelf for 10 years. There's not one word in Scripture about what he's doing in ministry. Many people think he was living in a cave uh, and really isolated. Uh, we don't know, but God was preparing him. God was grinding him down. And so here he is. Barnabas is in Antioch, and Antioch is exploding. It's exploding because God is blessing Antioch. And what's happening in Antioch is that Gentiles are coming to the Lord in droves. And these are people who were coming out of pagan backgrounds. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't have a, a scriptural background. Uh, and so here he is alone in Antioch, and he needs help. And so the great encourager, as Barnabas would be called always, had his limitations, you see. Uh, and he recognized that in Antioch. He was a great second fiddler, but he needed a virtuoso. And there he was in Tarsus on the shelf waiting to be picked by God. And so as the winds of revival swept that part of the world uh, in a powerful way and more and more new believers are coming there, Gentiles with virtually no exposure to Scripture, no understanding of the Old Testament, uh, no understanding of the heritage of Judaism, were called being called into the church. They were ignorant of God. They needed to be taught the Scriptures. The challenge was overwhelming. Not only were they coming in, these Gentiles were coming into the ranks 
of Christianity from really a completely non-Jewish background, but also they were tainted by the moral decay of Antioch, which was a, a decadent place. The Antioch was no Jerusalem. It was filled with every moral depravity that you could imagine. A gambling, prostitution, a moral debauchery in every possible way, in an unbridled way. And so these people are coming out of that background. Uh, and so God intervened. Uh, and so it says here that the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Can you imagine what it had to be like to be witnessing that kind of moral debauchery in an urban setting and see God bringing people out and saving them? That's what was involved. That's what the Lord was doing, impacting uh, that kingdom. That was the scene that Barnabas stepped into in Antioch, but he recognized it was like drinking out of a fire hose. He wasn't equipped to handle all the needs of these people. He needed help. Uh, there were no seasoned pastors to help him. There were no churches available to help him, to carry the load. There was very little knowledge about the truth of God there. And so finally, Barnabas realized, I'm over my head. I'm over my head. And the sermon point next is, Barnabas knew where to find his number one man in Tarsus. There he would find his friend, Saul, humbled, willing, and available. What an amazing story that is, that God would take this great apostle and put him on the shelf for 10 years in isolation, as we've spoken about, preparing him, grinding him down, setting him up for the next great stage of his life. Now, together through the grace of God, you see, uh, the two of them would team up to accomplish great things. They would become the greatest team, really, in the history of ministry as they would become great missionaries impacting the world. Now, the differences in background between these two men were profound, and I want to emphasize this to you as you partner in ministry. You don't look to have somebody just like you. Thank God, God doesn't do that, Okay. I'm glad for that. God finds people not like you, and that's a positive thing. And look at the differences here. Barnabas was raised in uh, Cyprus, which was a rural area. Saul was raised in Tarsus, which was an, er uh, an urban area. Uh, Barnabas was an encourager, an affirmer. Saul was a gifted preacher, an orator, and thinker. Barnabas flowed with love and compassion, seeking out the downtrodden. And Saul demonstrated remarkable grit and determination. And so the next sermon point for you is this. God uses all of our disparate gifts and talents. He called you, he created you for ministry, every single one of you. And I want to emphasize this to you. In this church, I expect every single member of this church to be involved in ministry. This is not a church where there's going to be 10 pastors doing ministry and you're going to be sitting in a seat uh, as a spectator. That's not the way this church is operating. This church is operating from the bottom up. All of you, all of you, I expect to be involved in ministry. Every single one of you. We will provide those opportunities, 
God will provide those opportunities. There are people here who will put you where you need to be. This becomes important. And so with Barnabas at his side, Saul would deliver effectively the theological mortar needed to cement these new believers. I love that sentence. The theological mortar to cement these believers. Yes, they would be called, but now he would give them the very mortar that would fix them in place. They would establish a powerful church uh, in Antioch. The theology, the organization, and the structures that these two pastors would lay down would create a powerful foundation for that area of the world. And as a result, and this is important, the first people that came to faith in Antioch were called Christians. How about that? That's the first time you will see that mentioned. Christians, Christians called together in Antioch. Now, looking back at the last several years of Saul's life, uh, it is not hard to understand why he was such an outstanding choice for this ministry uh, and, and for this leadership role. Uh, and the sermon point I want to give to you is this. God had revealed himself and his truth to Saul. His character had been forged in the shadows. With nothing to prove, he was ready to go and willing to spend himself for the glory of God. Do you understand? He had nothing to prove. He'd been in the shadows. He'd been waiting, waiting for God's hand on him, for the, for the determination of what his next step would be. And he was being prepared for this great call of his life. And here's the other part. He was not the least bit ambitious. I want to emphasize this to you. He was not the least bit ambitious. Even though he probably had heard about what had been going on in Antioch, I'm sure he had, he didn't rush to go down there and say, here I am, I'm ready, you can use me, I want to do this, I feel, I feel I'm caught. He didn't do that, you understand? He didn't do that. Uh, he didn't stoop to self-promotion. And when you're called by God, you don't stoop to self-promotion. It's not about your narcissistic self. It's about bowing to the will of God. And I can tell you as a personal testimony, when God called me to do ministry, when he did this, when he called me out of the practice of law, and when I first began to teach, uh, and even before I got on the radio, I said to the Lord, Lord, I will not push open any door. I will go where you want me to go. And if you don't give me the opportunity, I'll know it's your will and I will stay and abide where I am. I don't want to be a guy pushing the door open because I know myself. I'll go and do things I shouldn't do that are not the will of God. It'll be in my own head. I don't want to be a self-promoter. I want to be a promoter of God. And God did that in my life. In every possible case, from the way that he opened the door to start the church, from the way he did ministry. I never called the radio stations. I never sought the radio stations and asked to be on it today. By the grace of God, we're on 500 radio stations every weekend. Can you imagine that? That's the hand of God. That is the hand of God. When a person says to you, I never picked up a phone, I never made a call. And that's how God wants it. That's, that's the, that is what God expects of us as we walk. I will go where you want me to go. I will serve where you want me to go. There's no such thing as self-promotion in ministry. Now look, if you want a perfect example of that, the sermon point 
gives you this. God abhors self-promotion. Look at what David did after he killed Goliath. You can't get a better scene of humility. Where David, after he slays the giant and gives Israel this tremendous victory over the Philistines, where people would have wanted to come forward and make him a king and raise him up, what does he do? He goes back to the fields with the sheep and becomes a shepherd again. And he does this for 17 years, you see, even to the point where he's being chased by Saul, never lifting his hand against Saul, waiting for God, waiting for God to elevate him within the will of God. And so we all have to have a shepherd's heart. We all have to bow in submission and humility. And so I want you to reflect at how Saul kept a vigil, probably just like David in Tarsus. He waited patiently in the shadows. You can imagine how hard that had to be. Here he had been in the desert being mentored by Jesus for three years. Here he was, probably the greatest evangelist the world would ever know, a man filled with giftedness, a scholar of the first rate, and he's on the shelf for 10 years. What do you think that was like as he waited and waited and waited? Don't you think he said, Lord, what's going on? Lord, how much longer? How much longer until finally Jesus tapped him on the shoulder through Barnabas? And so the sermon point is that we all have to learn to wait on the Lord. The only thing worse than not waiting on the Lord, as a great pastor once said, is subsequently realizing I should have waited on the Lord. I should have waited on the Lord. And that's the, that's the mistake so many of us make. And so here he is now, tapped by Barnabas, and he steps into the critical role of leadership. Uh, and there is nothing more attractive when you see humility in this way, when you see a man who's full of giftedness in every way, bowing for the Lord and serving, even in a humble way. And in the beginning in this relationship, Paul played second fiddle. He did. It was only after they were on the road and situations arose that the giftedness uh, and the intellectual superiority of Saul rose up and he effectively became the leader of that partnership. But their single-minded goal was to glorify Christ. You understand? It wasn't to become famous. It wasn't to be acclaimed. It was to glorify Christ. Uh, and I want to say I see that example today on this stage by people that are giving their talents and giftedness to Christ, not looking to raise themselves up or to get acclaimed. They're looking to glorify Jesus. And that, you see, is the nature of what we want in this church in every possible way, starting from me right down through all of you. And so the next sermon point that I want to emphasize to you is this. The lesson here is that God chooses whomever he decides to use. This is the ministry essential of people. That's the nature of this. God chooses who he wants to be in ministry. He chooses all of you. You've all been saved. You're all walking with him. And so now he chooses you. And now the question is, what is your role? What is your role? And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Uh, and here's the other thing. God does not choose perfect people. You like that? All right. Is that a relief? He doesn't choose perfect people. He chooses you just as you are with all of your imperfections, with all of your failings, 
with all of your warts because guess what? You're human. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit, but you're still walking around in flesh. And God says, I'll choose you. I'm going to use you with your imperfections. I'm going to choose you and use you with your warts. Uh, but here's the thing. Your focus is going to be on Christ. It's not about your will. It's my will. And that's the thing. It's his will, not my will, even as we have imperfections, as God calls us out. And so God's plan includes sometimes removing very gifted people among us by sending them elsewhere. We don't understand the will of God, but that happens from time to time, where he will take some exceptionally gifted people and remove them from our midst and call them to be someplace else. What matters is this, God chooses who he wants and where he wants them to be. And that's how we bow to his will in every way. And so the sermon point I would contend for you here is we must remember that life is not a problem to be solved Rather, it is an adventure to be lived. Let me emphasize that to you again. Life is not a problem to be solved, but an adventure to be lived. God has fixed the world so that it only works when we embrace him. The world is lost. They will never find happiness. There is a hole in their heart that can only be filled with Jesus Christ. It can only be filled when we live by faith. You know, I saw a recent bumper sticker that I thought was rather profound. Uh, it said, you have only one life, live it. And I said to myself, that's good, but there were two words missing that would have made that statement perfect. Live it for him. Live it for him. And that's what I say to you today, congregation. Wherever you are in life, I don't care whether you're 70, 80, or 90, and I can say that with conviction in this group of people. All right? I don't care where you are. I don't care if you have 30 or 20 or 10 years to go. I want you to live every hour of whatever God gives you for him. Because that's what he has determined for you. That's the call of your life. And you will only be happy, you see, only be happy when you live for him. When you live for him. And I'll use the example for me. You know, I thought as I got older and I retired to Florida, this is great. I'm going to travel the world. Uh, you know, I'll get on a big boat. Life will be good. And guess what? God intervened. And I thank him that he did. He hit me in the head with a two-by-four. That's not for you, brother. That's not for you or your wife. As you get old, you're going to be in church, and you're going to lead a church. Oh, God, I'm getting old. I don't care. I'm going to take whatever time I give you and use it to advance the gospel of Christ. And he's saying the same for you. I want you to understand it. So I don't care if you've lived a life right now in which you haven't stepped up. Make today the first day for the rest of your life. Make a commitment today, just like Saul of Tarsus did, just like Barnabas did, to come together and say, God, whatever I have, whatever I will be, it will be for you in every possible way. I will serve you. What an amazing statement. Live it for him. 
Live it. This is the only way you will be happy. Okay? And you will be happy even as adversity hits you. You will be happy because you know you're doing it for him. You know where you're headed. And you will impact a lost world. Ministering together is an incredible adventure. Uh, it is about embracing change and it is about embracing challenges and having the flexibility to walk with God no matter what we face. That's what ministry is about. Antioch was turned upside down for Jesus Christ. And these two men walked in and changed the world forever. Now think about your own life right now. Think about it. And I could say this to this church because most of you were here three years ago when we walked out from a debacle and we came together not knowing where we would go, not knowing what God would open for us, but we came together as a group of people that wanted to serve God and be together with God. And look where you are today. Look where you sit. Look at the ministry opportunities that you have. Look at the fact that you've traveled through a, a school to a hotel and back to a school, and now, within a few short weeks, you know that God has given you a church, a permanent home where you will be, and preparing you to minister to what I will be hundreds of people who don't know Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is the call of this message, to partner up, to be prepared. We're going together. We're going to see people that don't know Jesus Christ. I want you to be ready to do this, to serve him. That's why this church is being called by the Lord to step forward in a powerful way. I believe that's why this message is being delivered today, and I hope as it goes out on the radio that others will be similarly called. We have all jointly committed ourselves to serving God. Live my life for you. I don't care if it's an hour or a day or 40 years, whatever I have left, and this is what you should say, I give to you. Look, there will be myriad opportunities in the new church uh, to serve God because we'll have space, we'll have nurseries, there will be babies and children, young, young parents, they'll be there waiting to be uplifted and affirmed, to be taught by older people who've committed their lives to Christ. And so now you need to humbly ask God, what would you have me do to serve you, Father? How can I live the rest of my life for you? Uh, none of us, none of us is called to live alone. All of us are called to partner up in ministry. We are all here to serve him together, just as Saul and Barnabas did. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this message. I thank you for the warning to us about what it means to come together as a church, about what our responsibility is to live every day of our life for you, to extend whatever we have left, whatever time we have to put it towards you, to bring the lost to you, Father. And especially so, Father, as we're going to shortly walk into a new church. I ask you that you lift up our eyes and make us aware of what that means as we're going to serve people that have never really heard in many ways about you, just as Paul, Paul did and Barnabas did in Antioch. I believe that's what we will face as we move into that new neighborhood. And so, Father, prepare us and give us the anointing 
to do this. Open our hearts and open our minds. And now, Lord, I beg you that you prepare us for this great sacrament we are now about to take as we now are about to take communion. As I bow and put this in Jesus' precious name, amen. And so now we're going to celebrate communion. And you know we have the new communion cups. And one more time, I will give the warning. Somebody said to me, why why do you think you have to give the warning? I said, because I have experience. (laughs) I've stayed at the front and watched people leave here with stains. All right? And so as you take these communion cups, which we've just ordered, because they're easier, you will see that the smaller portion has to be on top. That's where the bread is, okay? That's where the wafer is. So we will first open that uh, as we celebrate communion. Now, this is the most sacred thing we as a church can do, the most sacred, as we celebrate the commitment of Christ, what he did for us on the cross. There is no greater connection that we have as Christians than the connection of Christ on the cross, Christ at the Last Supper, communion with him in every way. And so if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate in this sacrament. You don't have to be a member of this church. All you have to be is someone who has accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you have done that, we want you to take communion with us. This is an ordinance, you see, for believers. Uh, And so each one of us bears a responsibility to examine our own hearts, our own condition as we take this. And this is what this is about. This is really about self-examination. Lord, as I come to take communion with you, Father, I ask you to search my heart. If there's any part of my life that's out of alignment with you, Father, I ask you that you convict me and that you address this, that you draw me closer to you. That's what communion is about, you see, as we join with Christ in every way. And so the great passage about this is in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, where Paul writing about this uh, and said that communion is not an option but must be taken by believers and Jesus commanded this. Uh, what he said there in that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And that's what this is about. We are personally remembering the commitment and suffering of Christ. Verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this becomes a public testimony to the world of who you are and what you believe in, and what Christ has done for you. Verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now let me explain this second portion because it becomes uh, important. 
uh, what, the, what the Lord meant about eating and drinking in an unworthy way. We're all unworthy. We're all sinners. We have all failed. But we recognize that without Christ, we're lost. We recognize that he saved us. And because you do that and bow before Christ, you are worthy. You are righteous because the filtering lens of Jesus Christ sits in front of you. God sees you through the filtering lens of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so that makes you worthy. That makes you worthy. Uh, And so we bow and we understand what this was, that sacrifice. You see, Jesus was able to say those very words because he was about to go to the cross and the very perfect sacrifice of all time for all of us. It would be the very last Passover feast. I want you to hear that. It's the last Passover feast sanctioned by the Lord because after that, it would be the Lord's Supper. It would not be animal sacrifice. It would be divine sacrifice once and for all on the cross. And so when we come to communion, when we come to this point, we have an understanding of what the Lord has done for us as he's washed us completely in the blood of Christ. This is why Christ could say in John 14, verse 6, that no man cometh to the Father except through me. No man cometh to the Father except through me. Put it on your refrigerator. Mark it in your mind. Go out into the world and make sure you tell that to the world. No man cometh to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus Christ did to us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. This is why we are Christians. And so as we reflect on the sacrifice of the Lord for us, let me make a prayer and say, Father, I ask you to anoint us right now as we're about to take these elements. Lord, help us, affirm us, seal us in every way. Let us, as we take this, commit ourselves even in a greater way to you in every possible way, Father, to go out and tell a lost world about what you have done for us. We bless you, Lord, in every way. We bless you, Father. And so let us take the elements, lift up the wafer first. And as Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup and said, this is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take it and drink it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Let's bow our head. Lord, I thank you for the great sacrifice that you've given us. Lord, I thank you that you've called us to the cross. I thank you that you've saved us, Father. And I thank you that you've given us the chance to join our bodies with yours. 
Lord, we thank you for everything that you have done. And today, as we've taken this sacrament, we will spend the rest of the day and the week reflecting on what it means to be lifted up together with you. I pray that this church will be humbled and changed by this. And so, Father, we bow and thank you for all. Lift up our hearts and say thank you, Jesus. We will live our life for whatever you've given us, for the rest of our life, for you in every way. Amen, church.